Would you pray with me as we open God's word together? Lord, grateful for our time to be together as, as your people, grateful for your word. Lord, may the words that I speak and the things that we think about in these next few minutes be pleasing to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, my dad was the consummate business person. Uh, he had his own company for many years. Not, not quite accurate to call him a serial entrepreneur, but he was, uh, I'm, I'm convinced that he could have sold just about anything to anybody at any time. And my, both my mom and dad came to faith a little bit later in life. And my, my dad and I, they, they attended a, a fairly large, very good, strong church that taught the scripture regularly. My dad and I periodically would have some conversation about how to connect his Christian faith with the thing that he spent most of his waking hours doing, which was running his company. And for all the time we talked and for all the time that my mom and dad spent in this wonderful Bible teaching church, the only dot he ever connected that, that linked his faith with what he spent the majority of his time doing was this simple fact that churches don't don't generate revenue they collect it which in his view meant that somebody else had to be out there generating it so that he so that they could give to the thing that in in his view really mattered most to God which was what went on inside the church building now in all the conversations we had I was never able to persuade him that although his view of this the the dot he had connected was right but it wasn't the only dot that needed to be connected and in our passage in Ephesians 6 today, in the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, connects a few more of these dots together, I think, in a really helpful way that helps us understand more of what God's design for our work might be. Now, we're wrapping up our discussion of the book of Ephesians. I think next, next week, Jordan, I think is the last two more, two more times. Um, and in, as Jordan has, has pointed out, in the past weeks in chapters 1 to 3 we get sort of the, the, the doctrinal and theological foundations that bring out the, the depth and scope of God's love for us and then Ephesians 4 to 6 is more, more outlines the shape of what our love for God looks like on a day to day basis and these this is the, the passage we're at today is the third of three what are known as household codes which are instructions from the Apostle Paul on how to deal with relationships within the household. Two weeks ago, we talked about the marriage relationship between husbands and wives. Last week, Jordan talked about the relationship between parents and children. Today, we talk about the relationship between masters and servants. And I, wanted, I want to point out, just to, just to reflect, if you remember two weeks ago, the discussion of husbands and wives was grounded in the Old Testament portion that had to do with creation and the institution of marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. It went all, it went all the way back to that. Last week, Paul, we saw in, in Ephesians, the, the last part of 5 and the first part of chapter 6, we saw that Paul grounded his instruction on parents and children, not in the order of creation, but in God's covenant relationship that came out of the Ten Commandments. But as you'll, as if you notice in our passage today and in the parallel in Colossians 3, there's no such appeal, no such grounding in any part of the Old Testament, any part of the biblical text. I think there's a good reason for that that we'll come to in a minute. Uh, 
But Paul's instruction here is no less authoritative and no less relevant, even though it's not grounded specifically in an Old Testament text. Now, before we get into what I think is the central point of this, I suspect that we probably need to address what many of you might consider the elephant in the living room here in this passage. How, how is it that the Bible can even talk about slavery? And the, how, how is it that the relationship between masters and slaves or masters and servants is actually something that Paul even needed to address? So let me just make a couple comments on this. This will, by, for the sake of time, will have to be a, the cut to the chase version of this. We could spend several, several weeks on this. Um, but my guess is when, when you hear the word slavery and read it here in the text, slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, my guess is that many of, many of us go straight to the pre-Civil War period in the United States and to chattel slavery that was based on race that flourished in both the United States and, and throughout the United Kingdom in Europe for many years before, before it was abolished in both of those places. And maybe you go to this phenomena of human trafficking today which has actually left more people enslaved today than at any other point in our history. But I want to suggest to you this, morning, this afternoon, that's not the right place to go for this. Because I think that presents a misleading picture of what this was like in the first century in the Greco-Roman world. I think that these are, rather than being analogous to chattel slavery that was race-based, this I think is more analogous to household servants that did arguably, understandably, I think some of the most mind-numbing, menial work that you can imagine. But it was not the same thing as what we experienced in this country and in the UK prior to slavery being abolished. Now, to be sure, there were aspects of the ancient world in the Old Testament time and in the Greco-Roman world where slavery was brutal. In fact, there were some parts of the Roman world, tradition has it, that. Uh, the slaves who worked on Masada, the great fortress of King Herod uh, outside of Jerusalem, had the average lifespan of a slave that worked on Masada from the time they started working on it until they died was six weeks. Not sure there's anything comparable to that that I'm, that I'm aware of. But um, for the most part, I think the, the biblical text, both in the Old Testament and in the New, essentially humanized what could at times be a brutal institution. For example, in the Old Testament, the law required that after six years of servitude, that the master of a servant had to release the servant, if that was the servant's wish, and endow him or her with enough capital, essentially, to start a small business. There was no, no sense of through releasing a servant and then sort of patting him on the back and saying, go knock yourself out. Now, I think it's what's important, I think, to, re to remember here is that the, 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 the relationship of servanthood, the master-slave relationship in the first century was more based on economic desperation as opposed to race or ethnicity. And in the Old Testament, I think part of what we have to recognize is though, it, though it's true that the Old Testament, particularly the law of Moses, does uh, portray the character and the heart of God and in that way gives us an ideal. But the, the Old Testament law was also designed to give us 
damage control in a broken and fallen world. And there's lots of things that in Old Testament law, we, we see the seeds being planted for people to go further than what was, what was allowed under the law. For example, the scripture gives us in numerous places the seeds that are planted to suggest that the, the ultimate abolition of slavery would be a good thing. But I, I, I'm not so sure about you, but I'm not totally satisfied with the, the explanation that the Bible simply humanized an institution that we later all uh, almost universally came to be recognized as worthy of being abolished. And so I, that raises, I think it begs the other question, why didn't the Bible just flat out abolish slavery? Why didn't Paul say to the Ephesians, instead of slaves, obey your masters, masters, release your slaves unconditionally? Why didn't the Old Testament say under the Mosaic law that it would, that would be illegal to have someone in a relationship of master and slave. That's what we did later after the Civil War, right? That's what they did in the UK when slavery was abolished. Let me suggest to you that there, I think there was a good reason why the Bible didn't mandate that during both Old and New Testament. I think, to, to put it, I think, most simply, if, if Paul had, had mandated if the, if the Old Testament had mandated the, the wholesale abolition of slavery, I think that would have condemned vast numbers of the poorest of the poor to starvation, destitution, and the women among them likely to prostitution. Because remember, in the ancient world, there was no central government with a, an economic safety net that was provided through the taxes of the people. In fact, most monarchies, which is what government looked like in the ancient world were what I would call kleptocracies, where the king and the court actually enriched themselves at the expense of most of the people who they claimed to serve. Now, there were exceptions to that, especially in Old Testament Israel, uh, but there were, there were also lots of times in Old Testament Israel where that also met the norm of the ancient world. So there was no there was no built-in safety net. There was no welfare state like there is in parts of Europe and Canada. There was no, there was no place for the poor to go. And I think what we, what we failed to recognize is that, the, is that the institution of slavery or servanthood was often voluntary. Now, a lot of times it was forced as well, but most of the time when it was forced, it was through people who were captured as prisoners of war and it was, and was not race-based. But a lot, in a lot of cases, Entering into servitude was a voluntary arrangement so that they could, the people who entered into it could have a, a roof over their head, clothes to wear, and food to eat. And that they, had they been cast out onto the streets without any kind of a safety net, disaster would likely have followed. Now, I think, to, to be fair, I think the, the, the servants in Ephesians 6 are more analogous I think to employees than they are to slaves. Although I think I think it probably, to be entirely fair, they're probably more analogous to, you know, um, probably entry entry level menial uh, menial workers who did arguably s some of the lowest jobs available in the first century. But the emphasis I think in the passage, so re regardless of how we view them. 
The emphasis in this text and in the parallel in Colossians 3 is on the work that they did, not so much on their standing in society. And so what Paul, this is why Paul emphasizes uh, in, in verse 6, for example, of Ephesians 6, Obey them not only, when, not only when they're favored, but when their eyes on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people because you know that the Lord will reward each for whatever good they do, whether slave or free. Now, the, the parallel over in Colossians chapter 3, I think, adds a little bit more texture to this that I think is particularly helpful. Now, again, the context here in verse 22 of Colossians 3 is slaves obey your masters and everything, and so on. And then in verse 23, in whatever you do, which admittedly, that's a pretty big tent, right? Whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Now, parentheses in this next part, because here's the punchline. In whatever you do, it's the Lord Christ whom you are serving. And that, I, suggest, I submit to you, was, was significantly countercultural in the first century, and I think it's significantly countercultural today. Because, you know, the statistics we hear about, especially today, post-COVID, in terms of dissatisfaction with the workplace, that some of the latest statistics have shown that roughly two-thirds of employees are either actively disengaged or intentionally undermining the work of their employer. And to say that most people are working simply for a paycheck, I think, would be a bit of an understatement. But the Bible's prescription for work is totally different than that. Let me go back just to just a moment to Genesis 1 and 2 in creation. You know, if we, if we look at what I, what I call the four-chapter big story of the Bible, it's creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, or the way things ought to be, the way things are, the way things could be, and the way things should be. We get a lot of discussion in our churches about these middle two chapters about sin and redemption. Not as much on the bookends, on creation and consummation, but in both those parts of biblical history, work plays a significant place. In fact, in, in Genesis 1 and 2, work is ordained, not in Genesis 3, and that order is significant because, Genesis, because you're if it were ordained in Genesis 3, then we could say that your work is your penalty. But the Bible doesn't affirm that. I know most people, maybe not most people, but a lot of people work like that. Which is why a lot of people are working as hard as they can to get, to make as much money as fast as they can so that they can retire as soon as they can and do something else that they think is contributing to God's kingdom. But the emphasis here is on the intrinsic value of our work since it was ordained prior to the entrance of sin. In fact, when in, in Genesis 1, when, right after God creates Adam and Eve, you know what he says to them? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule over it, and subdue it. Those five imperatives. Now, we often put be fruitful and multiply together to, to indicate the command for procreation, but they ought to be separate. Be fruitful actually has nothing to do with procreation. Now, the the multiply and fill the earth, that has everything to do with procreation because Adam and Eve couldn't do that by themselves. 
But the word, the term be fruitful actually means be economically or be vocationally fruitful. It was a call to human beings to be fruitful in an economic sense. Not that that's the measure of all things, but it's a measure that matters. And it was a, it was a mandate to, to pursue your vocation in a way that's ultimately fruitful. Now, I love the way my the way the late Chuck Colson put it. He said, I think what comes out of Genesis 1 and 2 is that we are hardwired for work. Now, to be fair, we're also hardwired for Sabbath and for rest so that work doesn't become our idol. And it's true that work is subject to the general entrance of sin. That's true. But remember, in Genesis 3, God didn't curse work. He cursed the ground. And those are two somewhat different things. It's true that our work is tarnished by sin, but work itself still has dignity and intrinsic value. And according to the New Testament, the thing that gives your work your value is its place in your service to God. Or to put it a different way, your work is your ministry. Now, it's not all of it, because you have ministry obligations in other places. In fact, I'm still waiting for the person who says to me, I, I, I worked 40 hours this week and I fulfilled all my ministry obligations that God has for me. Nobody's ever said that to me. And I doubt anybody will. But if, if we see our work as part of our service to God, in the New Testament, the term for, for ministry is most commonly translated as service. What that means is that all of us, regardless of where we get a paycheck from, are in full-time service to Jesus. We're in full-time ministry. Now, I will often ask people who I know who are in business or, or doing something for a paycheck in the workplace that's out of the church or mission organization setting. I say, tell me about your ministry in the workplace. And what do you, what do you think they tell me? They say things like, I pray for my coworkers. Uh, if I have a chance to share my faith with them, I, I do so. Uh, I may attend a prayer meeting or a Bible study in my workplace. Uh, if, if a coworker's life is coming unraveled, I may, you know, I may come alongside of them and be of service to them. At which point I, I often point out to them that all those things you are saying constitute your ministry in your workplace are all those things that you're doing when you are not doing your job, which I think is actually most of what you should be doing when you're in the workplace, right? Lest we be guilty of theft from our employers. I think what that suggests is that the very work we do is a part of our service to God. It's not incidental to it. It's not the thing that we do so that we have the income so that we can devote ourselves to service to God. It is a part of our service to God. And if all followers of Jesus are in full-time service, full-time ministry, what that means is that the point at which you entered it was not determined by when you decided where your paycheck was going to come from, right? You entered full-time service at the point at which you came to faith in Christ. And nobody leaves the ministry either. 
I mean, if, if, take, if Jordan were to step down from his position here, which I think all of us would say, please don't do that. Uh, but if he were to step down to go into business, it would not be theologically accurate to say that he's left the ministry. All he has done is change arenas of service, but he is still just as much in full-time service as he was before. To put it in Anglican terms, all of us are in a holy order, whether we wear a clerical collar or not. Now, I think what that suggests is that when we, our vocation, according to Paul, is, our, is an arena of service to which we are called. And, all, and my guess is that most of us in here have multiple vocations, multiple arenas of service to which God is calling us to simultaneously. I have a vocation as a father, as a, as a husband, as a professor, as a church member, as a member of my neighborhood. Um, I actually think we probably all have a vocation in some other part of the world, at least tempor temp maybe on a temporary basis. So we have, we have multiple arenas of service. So what, what I wish we would do, I wish we would stop referring to those people who get a, ch a paycheck from a church or another Christian organization as the only ones who are in full-time service to Jesus. Because that's theologically not true. I wish we would stop talking about people who have higher callings as though God had some sort of hierarchy of callings in his economy. You know, our brothers and sisters in the Reformation gave their lives to abolish that hierarchy. I wish we would stop talking about secular jobs because in God's economy, there's no such thing. In fact, I get a kick out of people who say, tell me how I can take God to work with me. Really? It didn't occur to you that God happens to already be there and well ahead of you in your workplace? I just want to make sure that the way we talk about this actually reflects what we believe theologically. And that is that all believers are in full-time service to Jesus. And in whatever we do in our work, it constitutes a part, not all of it, but a part of our service to Christ, which is why the Bible mandates excellence and integrity in our work. Now, I have a good friend who I think got this just about right. Uh, he's a dear, dear friend, and... Some years ago, he and his wife were coming back from a vacation overseas. And as they were getting off the jetway at LAX, getting off the plane on the jetway, she collapsed, unconscious, knocked out, still breathing, but otherwise unconscious. Nobody knew what had happened. So they rushed her to the emergency room. A neurosurgeon was called in. What they discovered after doing an MRI is that she had a tumor about the size of a quarter at the base of her brain that had caused her blackout. And through what I consider to be a, a miracle of modern medicine, uh, she had outpatient neurosurgery, which before this I thought was an oxymoron, uh, but it turned out not to be, through a brand new technology known as the gamma knife, where they excised the tumor with minimal collateral damage to the brain. And to my knowledge today, she is just fine. She went home that same day. The interesting part of this was that my friend, her husband, was marveling at all of the occupations that had to come together to facilitate her healing. And he was particularly taken with the imaging software that allowed the physician, the surgeon, to pinpoint exactly where the tumor was and to get it out with maximum 
collateral damage. You know what he said? He said, I sure am glad that the person who wrote that imaging software, assuming they're a follower of Jesus, didn't decide to leave their business to go serve the Lord full time. I think, I think he got it exactly right. Because that's precisely what that person was doing. Again, assuming they're a follower of Jesus. That's what they were doing in their work. And that work of facilitating healing was, was a part of that person's service to God. This is why I love the end of the 90th Psalm, which we read as part of our scripture reading. That Lord, establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Because every, every Sunday when we walk out of here, that, that should be our prayer. Establish the work of our hands. Now, I know some of you who are here who are, who are retired or um, maybe unemployed and see this a little differently. But let me suggest to you that even if you are retired, you may, you may have retired from a paycheck, but you haven't retired. The Bible has no category for people retiring from active service to him. And so regardless sort of, of what your employment situation is, uh, I think the, the mandate, the, the, the prayer for God to bless the work of our hands is just as applicable. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word that speaks so clearly to our work. Lord, we pray that you would establish the work of our hands. Amen.